Welcome back to Clinicians Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and we're currently in Reno, Nevada for the Wild West Vet Show, where we're sitting down with session speakers to get the inside on the tracks and their lectures and learn all the tips and tricks that you guys can put into practice immediately, even if you weren't able to attend this amazing conference. Today and for this episode, we are really excited to have a a friend of the podcast, a, a repeat guest with us today, Dr. Kirsten Pierce, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to get to sit down with you in person and to have a conversation to talk about the things you're here at Wild West talking about. So your lectures out here are Follow Your Heart, The Essential Cardiology Exam, and Be Still My Beating Heart, Diagnosis and Management of the Most Common Cardiac Arrhythmias in Dogs and Cats. I pulled these off the conference schedule in a heartbeat when I saw them. No pun intended. See what I did there? (laughs) Because truthfully, though, I think cardiology is, is fascinating. It's important. It's something that comes across our desk on a regular basis and you know we want to be able to do best practices always and I think it's somewhere we can always be building our confidence and our skills now again you are an old friend of the podcast so we know a little bit about your background but for folks who maybe haven't heard your previous lecture just give us a little bit of reminder where you are out in Colorado now right yep I'm at CSU I'm one of the faculty cardiologists there and I'm also doing an interventional cardiology fellowship So learning some advanced interventional minimally invasive procedures, um, which has been great. Yeah. And then prior to that, I was at Tufts University for my residency. I taught there as well. And then I did go into private practice for about two years before coming back to academia. You've got an amazing background. I mean, you really do. And and a lot of education behind you, which is what's got you here today giving out all this amazing information. And again, I think it's all very important. And you know, when I I was looking through your lectures and the notes and when I was listening to you talk, the one thing that I I totally agreed with this, this opening statement that you made, which was the identification of arrhythmias and their management can be intimidating and challenging at times. And I thought that's just such a clean summary of the fact of owning that, yes, it can absolutely be a challenge at times. Why is it such a challenge? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, yeah, ECGs can be very challenging. There are even times where there might be three or four cardiologists in the room and we're sitting there debating about what the ECG is telling us. Um, And so the surface ECG or your lead to ECG gives you a lot of information about kind of the summation of the electrical activity of the heart. And so there are some electrical activity that's happening that doesn't show up on the ECG. One is something called concealed conduction, where we don't see it on the surface ECG. And in order to see it, you'd have to put electrodes inside the heart and record it that way. So it really can be challenging to figure out what it's really telling you. I think the other aspect of it that can make it pretty intimidating is that some arrhythmias like ventricular tachycardia can be life-threatening. And so those really need to be diagnosed and addressed right away. So you don't have the luxury of time and looking things up. And so that's something that just kind of needs to be um, in your mind and know what to do. That makes a lot of sense right there. are Some things that it's the heart and it's not mm-hmm. doing what it needs to be doing with electrical conductivity. We need to address this right away, right? And it's not a laughing matter, but it is It is incredibly important. And unfortunately, I think sometimes it's like you're in the middle of it, dealing with it. And like you said, being prepared ahead of time, knowing what you're going to do and going right to that procedure. I guess it's really, really important because like you said, these are either deceiving and, and through no one's fault of their own, right? The equipment itself mm-hmm. or their immediate 
situations we've got to get in front of. So I, I think for a lot of people, it can be hard to gain confidence. And you make some great points. And, and I love that you make these salient points that say, it's not you, right? It, it can be <laughs> exactly. the equipment, it can be the lead. And so that practice and that game plan is incredibly essential, right? Yep, um, absolutely. And I feel like the amount of training that we get, at least in veterinary school, is not that much on ECGs. We have lectures usually during our second year course curriculum and then the students will come through clinics for about two weeks their fourth year and so really that's not enough time to gain confidence. I mean even after a three-year residency there's still stuff that I learn about interpreting ECGs. I feel like too it's like when an ECG read the book and followed the rules it's great like we're all like look I'm a genius I can read ECGs I get it and then it's like Anything outside of that is like a whole nother ball game. And like you said, now we're chasing down information and looking things up and it gets a little bit, you know, out of control. But one thing that you outline the importance, and I think this, this kind of ties into all that, is the importance of the detailed history. So tell me, when we're talking about the history from a cardiac diagnostic standpoint, what are we really focusing on there? Yeah, I think that, I mean, the history and your physical exam are the basis of your cardiac workup. It really is the foundation to figuring out the diagnosis and what to do treatment-wise. So as far as the history goes, I mean, things from a cardiac standpoint we really want to know is, is the patient having any trouble breathing? If they are, how long has it been going on for? Have they been coughing? And really getting that description of the cough. So is it a dry, goose-honking, hacking cough with activity and excitement, which maybe would make you think tracheal collapse or main stem bronchial compression? Or are they coughing frequently at rest, maybe at night, and it's a low-pitched wet cough? And that can be more indicative of pulmonary edema and congestive heart failure. So really focusing on kind of the description, how long it's been going on for, what's the frequency. Other things that we need to ask detailed history about include asking about weakness, wobbliness, collapse. Are they having syncopal events? And if they are, to help sort those out from seizures, we need to figure out how long they're lasting. Are there any associations or triggers that's causing the events? So is it due to activity? Are they just collapsing at rest? Or are they having a coughing fit that's inducing these spells? of collapse. Another important aspect of our detailed history is going to be our diet history, um, especially with the recent link between boutique, exotic, and grain-free diets and the development of dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, and also we really want to focus on what's the sodium content of these diets. So a lot of patients that are close to heart failure or maybe inactive congestive heart failure, they should be on a restricted sodium diet. And so that's going to be really important as we take that history. And not only is it the diet, but it might be any treats that they're getting, table foods, yeah. or how they're administering their medication. So it's not uncommon that we have a patient with cardiac disease receiving five medications and I say, oh, how are you giving the medications? Like like, a hot dog. Exactly. Oh, no. like a hot dog, a piece of sliced meat. And I'm like, oh, the salt content yeah. in that. That's such a good, and it, you know, client education, right? It comes down to those are the things that are really important that we make sure they understand. That's a really good point. Thank you for adding that for sure. It's not just the food. It's the treats. Yes. My dog doesn't eat any table food. We just give that hot dog every day. 
absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, you make such a good point because I think of times I've been, you know, in general practice or an emergency clinic and a client, so many of the things that you're explaining and that you're talking about sound like secondary things that make sense. So my dog is coughing. A lot of times clients won't think cardiac. And again, also our customer service reps and our staff, if not properly trained, and if the clinic message and the SOPs are not where they need to be, we could be missing that as, as actually like a really important sign. And, you know, I think about how often I hear support staff taking a history saying, you know, any vomiting, diarrhea, coughing, or sneezing. And we kind of like rattle this big long thing off and, oh, he's been coughing a little bit lately. And like, it's like we circle a box, but we don't maybe necessarily get that really heavily detailed. When is it happening? What does it sound like? And, and like you said, some of it can be confusing. I know I have had clients present and say, my dog had a seizure and, and with further conversation, it really was a syncopal episode. And, and they'll say, oh, well, they were vomiting and then they, they went over and had a seizure. I'm like, maybe they vomited so hard. They, <laughs> we, we kind of had a little syncopal episode, but they don't, our clients don't necessarily see that. And, you know, we had a conversation earlier with Dr. Goldstein, we were talking about dentistry. And I think the most common message with all of these amazingly brilliant veterinarians like yourself that I get to talk to that are so well-trained and have so much knowledge is, it's foundations, it's the physical exam, and it's the client history, no matter what we're really dealing with, that's foundational, right? Like it's Absolutely. really, we can never stop seeing that as the most important thing we do in clinic, can we? No, I think that is really the basis of, of these workups and figuring out what the next steps are. Because just based on a description of a cough or an event, that might drastically change what we do. So maybe if the description more sounds like seizure, we're recommending to see a neurologist and get an MRI. But if it sounds more like a syncopal event, then they may go and get an ECG, an echocardiogram, and see a cardiologist. So it might be the difference between recommending which specialists they see. That's right. And our general practitioners are, are basically the detectives that have to mm -hmm. figure out what's going on and how we get them where they need to be. So to be fair, and, and I think this kind of ties in well, is, you know, you talk about this consistent approach and, and honestly, that's it, right? It's that we have to have this consistent approach to most of the things that we do. We create a habit of going things, you know, tail, you know, to nose or nose to tail or however it is that you do it or you're going to do it. You keep that consistency around it. So walk us through a little bit about your consistent approach, if you would, and, and just tell us a, bit, a little bit about why that's so important when it comes to cardiology. Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, I think for anything, a systematic and consistent approach is going to make sure we don't miss anything. There's no right or wrong way to go through it as long as you do it the same way every time. So for me, when I'm doing a cardiac physical exam, I go nose to tail. Um, and as I'm doing that, I start with mucous membranes. I think one of the things that a lot of people tend to miss, and I know the students do when they're first learning exams, is looking at the jugular veins. Okay. So the jugular veins can give us, if they're distended, information about increased central venous pressure and increased right atrial pressure. Um, if there's pulsation, that could indicate that maybe there's an arrhythmia or a dyssynchrony to the heart. Um, and so really important to, to make sure we're looking at the jugular veins. So for me, I start mucous membranes, jugular veins, I get a good auscultation of the heart, and same with auscultation, as I'm listening, I'm first saying, okay, what's the heart rate? Is it appropriate or inappropriate for the patient in front of me? What's the rhythm? Is it regular or irregular? Do I hear a heart murmur? If I do, where is the point of maximal intensity? 
and how am I going to grade this murmur? And then I work my way back and I'm getting abdominal palpation. Is there any distension? Do I have a fluid wave that could indicate ascites and right-sided heart failure? And then I'm feeling the arterial pulses. And I think it's important as you're feeling the arterial pulses to also get a listen to the heart simultaneously. And that can help with timing. If you're trying to decide is the heart murmur systolic or diastolic, feeling the pulses is really going to help you with timing. It can also help you pick up pulse deficits as well. Okay, and so basically whatever system you're comfortable with, mm-hmm. create a system, stick with it every time, and, and just keep to that through that entire physical exam. Because otherwise we, we lose things, right? We, we tend to get off track and possibly get kind of caught up in, in this start thinking about that diagnostic, you know, effect of what we're actually hearing in that moment and then missing other things. And, and to that point, you have the same systematic approach with ECG, right? Absolutely. So again, they can be very challenging and intimidating, but just taking that systematic approach. And so for me, again, when I'm starting at the ECG, I'm saying, okay, what's the heart rate? Is it appropriate for the patient based on their size, based on their sympathetic tone? So are they really nervous or relaxed? So heart rate, I think, is really the big one first, and is it, is it appropriate? Next is, is the rhythm regular or irregular? That can help us sort things out. Then we're going to see if there's a P wave for every QRST complex. And is there a QRST complex for every P wave? Are there any premature, so early heartbeats? Or are there any pauses or maybe some escape rhythms? And really, that's going to give you about 90% of the diagnosis that we get on ECG. Certainly, if you have time, it's good to go back and measure the complexes and intervals to get more information about chamber enlargement. So, okay, and, and, and that makes a good point, I feel like, in, it, obviously in cardiology, you're hooking most of your clients up to ECG, right? right? But in the general practice, when are we reaching for it? Like, are we going for it only in cases of arrhythmia? When are you really talking to your general practitioners about needing this diagnostic tool? Yep, so I think if there's any cardiac abnormality in your physical exam, it would make sense to do a screening ECG, especially if you're feeling any pulse deficits. We'll want to document to see if it's due to any arrhythmia and abnormal heartbeats. Other times that I might reach for an ECG when our cardiac exam is normal would be if there's significant abdominal disease. So say there's a splenic mass or a liver mass and you're trying to figure out if you should go to surgery or not, a lot of those patients may have what we call extracardiac causes of arrhythmia. So it would be nice to document a baseline ECG before proceeding with surgery. Other times that an ECG can be helpful is if you have breeds that are predisposed to dilated cardiomyopathy. So maybe you're seeing a Doberman and the physical exam is completely normal, but we know they can get DCM, which can be hidden in occults. And so one of the ways that you can help screen is doing a five-minute ECG. There are some studies that show even one VPC over five minutes in a predisposed breed could potentially mean there's underlying dilated cardiomyopathy and they should get further workup. So like in these guys, even if we're not getting any kind of arrhythmia or and everything appears normal, we're still thinking maybe this is a great idea. Yes. I also love the idea of getting a baseline and as a support staff member, I guarantee you all your veterinarians out there that are listening, your support staff members who have to look at these ECGs through surgery would love that baseline before they're there. So I think that as a support staff member, that's a great recommendation because it helps us a lot to know, hey, is this our, our, do we know we're here or is this somewhere we just got, right? I think that's another important point with the ECG is just recognizing normal versus abnormal. So if we have that baseline, that 
that's great. Um, one of the other things that I tell the students when we're looking at ECGs is they look at something like, oh, that's abnormal, and they're not really sure why. And so I tell them, just find a normal sinus beat and compare it to that sinus beat. So if you're comparing it and the QRS complex looks similar, um, then it might be sinus in origin. If it's more narrow, it could be supraventricular tachycardia, or if it's wider than the normal sinus QRS, um, then likely it's ventricular in origin. So that can really help you out when you have a normal for comparison. And, you know, going back to these, you know, breed dispositions, and we've got all this craziness going on with the diet and the cardiomyopathies, are you saying that at some point in time for these dogs that we have are just known breed dispositions we should be recommending to our clients, let's just get an ECG, run it for five minutes and get some baselines and look and make sure everything's okay when they're perfectly normal and healthy, or are we waiting for some kind of sign? Yep. And for a lot of these kind of occult diseases like dilated cardiomyopathy, they are more of an adult onset. Yeah. So we're diagnosing them between four to nine years of age. So I think when they're a young puppy, maybe not, but as they get older and we know that they get heart disease, we're able to start some medications that really can help delay the onset set of congestive heart failure and yeah. so I think it might be a good way to help catch these patients sooner um, if we are doing a screening ECG. I love that idea. Should, should general, should we be, if we're seeing this, so a uh, cult case, uh, breed disposition, we see maybe one indication in that five minutes should we be sending them to specialty? Should we be working that up in GP? What, do you, what is the next step for somebody who comes across that where there was not a problem, now we're kind of like maybe scaring the client? Like, how do we go about that? Yep. I mean, and I think that all starts with a conversation with the client. We found this. You know, it could be abnormal. For Dobermans in particular, 50 VPCs in 24 hours is normal. Anything more than that is indicative of intrinsic myocardial disease. So I think having that conversation saying, okay, these are our options. You could go see a cardiologist and get an echocardiogram done. I mean, I think other things that can be done by the general practitioner to help sort out is there significant heart disease would be performing thoracic radiographs. And okay. you can see if there's cardiomegaly. Is there a big round globoid heart on the x-rays? Um, another test would be a biomarker like NT pro BNP. And that biomarker is elevated when the heart muscle is stretched or stressed. And so that can be used to screen for occult cardiomyopathy. So that might be a good next step. So you you find something abnormal on the ECG, maybe you look at thoracic radiographs for chamber enlargement, perform an NT pro BNP, and then if that's elevated or there's cardiomegaly, then certainly going to see a specialist and, and having an echocardiogram is a good next step. Is this something we should be coaching puppy owners on? Like if I get a brand new Doberman puppy into the clinic, do I need to be talking to this client about long-term cardiac health? I mean, personally, <laughs> I'm asking I, a cardiologist. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, of course, I'm going to say yes. But I think a lot of the ones that we're seeing at younger ages are dogs that are being bred, and so through the OFA Advanced Cardiac Database, um, we are screening all predisposed breeds like Dobermans and Boxers that get arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. We're doing an ECG. We're maybe doing a Holter monitor every six months, sure. and at least a yearly echocardiogram. So that's part of their clearance for breeding. And so it's recommended that they start even as early as age two. That's, you know, and, and, and that makes a lot of sense. And I love the idea of prepping our clients for this because, again, you know, we think, I think personally, again, as a support staff member about pet insurance and helping them be ready for these types of things going down the road. And it's, it, heart disease is something our clients can understand and it's something they know can be prevented. So I think it is one thing we can talk to them about at an early age and help them be proactive about lifelong. And I think it is an area where we could be doing 
doing better and I just like to kind of think about things what could we do better how could we get in front of this earlier and I think that's a good I think it's a good way and that makes me think a little bit so okay you know we we're building our confidence around this systematic approach we've got a systematic approach to a physical exam we've got a systematic approach to our ECG we know what we're gonna do but what are those next steps look like when it comes to treatment what are the goals of treatment when we do recognize you know some kind of condition when it comes to treatment I mean we know we're not gonna get rid of it right so what are our goals really I mean, I think that's a good point, too, because we're diagnosing arrhythmia, but not every arrhythmia requires treatment. Right. Um, and so certainly if we have ventricular tachycardia, that's an absolute emergency and always requires therapy. If we have atrial fibrillation and it has a slow ventricular response rate and they're hemodynamically stable, doesn't require treatment. Certainly if they're really tachycardic or bradycardic, most of those dogs do need intervention. The other one being any dog with third degree AV block, the gold standard for treatment is implantation of a permanent pacemaker. Okay. Um, so those are kind of some standards that we know. I think it gets a little bit less certain maybe when there's a handful of premature beats and we're trying to decide does this dog need treatment or cat need treatment or not. And some of it's going to come down to is it causing hemodynamic compromise? So is this patient having clinical signs from the arrhythmia? What's their blood pressure? Do they have weakness, wobbliness? Are they having syncopal events? If they're having any clinical signs, then it definitely warrants treatment. I think if we're not sure, the next step to sorting that out would maybe be to do a 24-hour Holter monitor, and that will give us more information about the frequency, what's the complexity of the arrhythmia, and does it warrant more investigation or more treatment? Um, and some of these arrhythmias also indicate underlying cardiac disease. And so to sort out the structural cardiac disease, they may need an echocardiogram as well. And in my experience, those Holter monitor cases, they're, it's pretty affordable. The, the dogs do pretty well with them. I've, I've, I've had a lot of client compliance and, and good outcomes with that. Is that what you see as well? Yeah, dogs don't seem to mind too much. They get to wear a cute little vest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they wear it for 24 hours. And then the client gives us a, a diary yeah. that lets us know what level of activity they're doing so we can figure out what's their heart rate and rhythm while they're sleeping, when they're excited, when they're exercising, and that information is really invaluable to us. Right, and it gets them on their normal every day when they're at home and we're not having to decipher within the clinic. And, you know, I guess to that point, we have all this diagnostic information. At what point from a general practitioner standpoint are we referring? And when it comes to referring, with you as a specialist, what is it you want us to send with the patient? What can we be doing to make your job easier and to make the client's experience better? Yeah, I think as far as when to referral, I mean, really that comes down to what's the comfort level of the practitioner that's seeing this patient. If they feel comfortable diagnosing and treating the arrhythmia, then they sh should go ahead and do that. If they're not exactly certain about the diagnosis or they're not certain about the treatment or treatment options, then maybe they should refer out. So I think a lot of that comes down to what's their comfort level. If they're having a lot of ventricular arrhythmia and ventricular tachycardia, that's going to require further workup to figure out if there's underlying structural heart disease. And so if they're not able to have an echocardiogram done in their practice, they may need to refer out. But as far as arrhythmias, I really think it comes down to how confident are they and what's their comfort level. What's your favorite resources to help people gain confidence and comfort when it comes to doing, you know, diagnosing and treating these arrhythmias? 
I mean, just like with everything, it comes with practice, and a lot of ECG is pattern recognition. It's just looking at it over and over again and being able to really easily pick that up and recognize it. Um, as far as some um, resources, um, the UC Davis, their veterinary website, they actually have some practice cases of cardiac disease, some with arrhythmia, some with structural heart disease. I think that's a good thing to go through yeah. um, to practice those cases. Yeah, that's, and that sounds like a fun tool, right? Because it's like hands-on and, and they're actual mm -hmm. cases and they're not patients in front of you with a client that you have to answer to. And that's exactly what I'm looking for. Anything other than UC Davis that you like? Um, I think another great thing is just coming to these conferences and yeah. listening to different talks and you can see how other people in that field approach the ECG and how they interpret it. Um, and I have one of those talks tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. if anyone wants to join. <laughs> that's right, that's our crowdsource, right? Plum's Veterinary Drugs is the must-have veterinary drug resource. With Plum's Veterinary Drugs, your number one source for drug information can always be right at your fingertips, on your phone, your tablet, or your desktop, wherever you need it. To learn more and subscribe, visit PlumsVeterinaryDrugs.com. Okay, and you have experience with this, so you know not a whole lot of pressure to keep it actually brief, but this is our keep it brief section. And what I wanted to ask you today, the question that I came up with, and don't get mad at me, was basically, the scenario is we just got alien invaded and they're here to take all of your cardiac diagnostic tools away from you, but they're gonna let you keep just one. What do you keep? So I think one of the things that they can't take away from us is the ability to do um, a cardiovascular physical exam. Yeah. So I think we can get a lot of information from that. As far as diagnostic tools, I would want to keep the echocardiogram. <laughs> yeah, that's, you, that's that, the one you keep. Yeah, <laughs> that gives us the most information about the cardiac structure, function. We get information about hemodynamics. And it's also a really nice, sensitive, non-invasive imaging modality to help us get a definitive diagnosis. Um, and even if you don't have an ECG, when you're performing the echocardiogram, if there's an arrhythmia, you can visually see it on sure. the ultrasound. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, if you guys, uh, if alien invasions happen and you need an ECG, you know who's going to have one. <laughs> We'll send them to you, Dr. Pierce. I could talk to you all day about this, and I think it's so important. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge and experience to help you know, practitioners gain confidence in performing these, you know, really important diagnostic measures within the clinic, gaining confidence and, and gaining experience through knowledge and your experience. So thank you so much for taking the time and for being here today. Not a problem. I would say, I mean, general practitioners have one of the hardest jobs. They have to know everything about everything. That's um, right. And so certainly I don't fault them if they have questions about ECG or echocardiograms about cardiac disease. Um, and so I know Cardiologists are always here to help, and, and I'm always happy to help my local referring veterinarians as well. So don't be afraid to reach out. I love that. Thank you. And thank you for being willing to share because that's what this is about. It's about us just, you know, knowledge sharing and, and helping this profession elevate and do things better. So thank you again so much. You're welcome. It's great being here today. Thanks again to today's guests for joining us, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe. Rate and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. 
You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief the Podcast is a Brief Media production. Produced by Alexis Ustry. Sound by Randall Stupka. Hosted by me, Becky Mosser. With special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.